Warm enough? I guess that's my answer because maybe you're already dozing off. I have found it really hard to regulate the heat in here this winter because it's just not been like we typically expect on a in January Sundays and, and we've got one heater that's not working full capacity so we're trying to balance it out so if you're sitting on this side and you're warm come over to this side it tends to get a little bit cooler and vice versa and um, if you're just uncomfortable just because of what we're doing here <laughs> so sorry <laughs> yeah. yeah hey I'm glad to be here and I'm glad you're here um, Oh, you know what? I had one more announcement. didn't write it down, but thankfully it just popped into my head. We have an opportunity. Um, we do this from time to time. We try not to overdo it. But every once in a while, there's an opportunity to help somebody uh, who's really deserving and in need. And we do that through a financial gift. And uh, a need was uh, made known to me this week where I feel like... Um, as a church, we could, we could really help this family out over the next couple of weeks if we could just collect some funds for them. There's some health issues going on. There's a, there's a, it looks like a surgery out of state and some travel and some time away from work and some recuperating time and all that. And I feel like uh, we have an opportunity that we could help and really be a blessing to this family. So here's how we do that. Whenever they have these opportunities at Faith Community is you just see one of our pastors. You see me, you see Pastor Bob. And uh, you just give that direct, don't put it in the offering box, just give it directly to us and we'll keep that separate and we can receipt you for it, but we just want to keep that separate so that goes directly to that family, okay? So um, might say that, something about that for the next couple Sundays and uh, that would be great. We began a series a couple weeks ago uh, that we called Defining Moments. And we said that uh, a defining moment is basically a moment in time a moment in your life uh, because of circumstances, because of something unforeseen, because of something you hear, because of something that you, uh, someone says, because of something that you read or something that just pops into your head. So suddenly, without any warning, a truth, a truth that you'd never heard before maybe, a truth that you know but you forgot, um, a truth that you got too busy and you neglected the truth, uh, suddenly out of nowhere, that truth comes front and center. And it almost takes your breath away, and it's kind of like an aha moment. And in that moment, you have the opportunity to disregard what you've been clinging to, that you've been trusting in, what you've been holding on to, what you've been living by. And in that moment, you have an opportunity to embrace a brand new truth, or maybe just a truth that you had uh, you know, a long time ago forgotten as, and put off to the side. And in that moment, your life or something about your life is changed. A defining moment is one of those deals where you're not necessarily expecting it. You don't necessarily go out looking for it. You're not even necessarily always positioned for it. You're just kind of minding your own business, going about life. And from somewhere comes this truth, and it becomes a lens through which you view some particular circumstances or maybe all of the circumstances of your life. Now, a defining moment can happen in just about every area of your life. It can happen in your marriage, And if you've been married for any amount of time, I hope you've had some defining moments. It can happen in your finances. It can happen with your kids. And it happens, again, stage after stage as you you raise your kids, you're going to have defining moments. It can happen in your business. It can happen in any realm of your life. But one of the most important areas where a defining moment can and should happen 
is in your relationship with God. And that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. There should be spiritual defining moments in your life. And I believe that every once in a while that God kind of does you a favor and you get a little bump and you hit a little bump in the road or there's a sudden change or all of a sudden there's this truth right in front of you and it's brought front and center. And at times we just get um, too busy and we go around it. At times uh, we're, we're, we're just not ready for it and we're resistant to this brand new truth and it's uncomfortable. Then there's times where there's an opportunity for major life change because like today all of us have a view of God and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We all believe something about God and we said this a couple weeks ago and if you weren't here a couple weeks ago for part one of Defining Moments, I really encourage you to grab that CD or to log on to our, you know, check it out on our website or subscribe to the podcast and get caught up on that because we laid the foundation for this whole premise of defining moments, that the idea that for every distortion that we have about God, there is a corresponding consequence. That anything that you think about God that is not true, that's not true of God, there is a corresponding consequence to believing that. Whether you think that you're unforgivable or whether you think God has lifted that ban on certain sins, or wherever you are on the spectrum, whenever there is a definition about God or a distortion about God, there is a corresponding consequence to that. And I'll tell you where we see this every single day. I think we see it every day if you watch any news, and I try not to watch very much of it. But if you watch some, we see this in what's happening around the world in, in terrorism. In almost every case, if you were able to sit down with these terrorists and ask a question, like, why did you do that? What were you thinking? What were you hoping to accomplish? Uh, do you know what you get in response? Most of the time, 99% of the time you get, because I believe God, and then they'd fill in the blank. Because I believe God told me, and they'd fill in the blank. Because I believe that God would have, and, and God hates this, and therefore God, you know, sanctions that, and, and the, their explanation becomes all about God. And we listen to these claims, and we're like, well, I don't get that. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, because that's not my God. My God isn't like that. You didn't get that direction from the God I believe in. And then it's like, well, wait a minute. Well, who's to say? Because we're talking about, we're all just saying, talking about God. Who's to know, and who's to make the rules? My point is, whenever there's a distortion, when it comes to what is God like, there is always a consequence. And so every once in a while, God in his grace and in his mercy is going to bring some truth front and center in our lives. And if we're courageous enough to stand there in the light of those truths, there's potential for major, significant, lasting life change. In fact, it was into this kind of mindset, this way of thinking that Jesus walked. This is where Jesus showed up. There was massive confusion about what God was like. And when Jesus showed up, the thing that made him uh, unique is that he said things like, I've come to explain God to you. And they're, they're thinking, well, thank you very much, but you're not the first person to show up who promised that. And he's like, oh, but I'm different. You've got to listen to this. And through Jesus' life and ministry, he manifested this ability to read the hearts and minds of people, an unbelievable supernatural ability to capture the imaginations of his audience. And then not only that, he performed all these miraculous signs, and he said, this isn't about me, unlike any other miracle worker before me, unlike the political leaders who've come before me, unlike teachers that have come before me, this isn't about me. I've come from the Father to explain the Father to you, to reveal the Father to you. Because he doesn't want to remain a mystery. He doesn't want there to continue to be all this confusion about who he is. He wants you to know him 
for who he is, not for who you have imagined him to be. He wants you to know him for who he is, not for who you've made him up to be in your own mind and your own thinking or who you've been told that he is. And over and over, Jesus taught lessons and had encounters with people where he brought truth about God front and center. And many of these men and women in his audience embraced it, were willing to let go of their preconceived ideas, and their lives were changed forever. In fact, in this uh, series of these next few weeks, we're going to look kind of over the shoulders of some of these people, these characters in the Scripture, and we're going to listen uh, to what Jesus had to say to them. And here's what we're going to discover. This is what many of us in this room have already discovered, that sometimes when God confronts us with truth, it is so uncomfortable and is so unnatural and it is so counterintuitive and even and countercultural. It is so against everything that we were raised to believe, even if maybe you grew up in the church. It's like standing in front of a giant light and it's like coming out into the sun after being in a dark room all day and you squint your eyes and you're like, this is uncomfortable. I want to go back inside. I want to go back to where my eyes had already adjusted. They already adjusted to what I, already, I had always believed. This is uncomfortable. But a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage of Scripture in John where Jesus said that if you'll remain there, if you'll abide in his truth, if you'll pause, if you'll just stay, just stay there in the uncomfortable light of his truth and face it, if you'll do what you have to do to stay there and not run back to what you've always believed, then in time, he said, you'll know the truth. And the truth has a potential to set you free free from all your misconceptions about God, free from fear, free from your guilt, free from the way that you've interpreted circumstances that make you wonder if there is a God at all. You've probably been there. But you can't run. If you want to get there, you can't run. You can't hide from it. You've got to stay there in that uncomfortable light long enough for your eyes to adjust. And then he says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let's pause right here and have a word of prayer before we dive into where we're going this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the truth that is the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the things that he uh, taught us through his uh, actions and through his interactions with people, through his words and his teachings. And, uh, and God, I pray that you would uh, just bring us to a place where we're comfortable just staying right here in, in your, the light of your truth just long enough for our eyes to adjust, for our spiritual eyes to adjust, and to let that become a part of our lives. We know that you have a defining moment for us somewhere in this process that changes something maybe we've always kind of believed or maybe something that we've kind of ignored or just addresses a specific situation in our lives. So we pray for that for each person in this room this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's character uh, that I want to talk about gets blinded uh, by some unbelievable truth. Truth that... um, he would have found to be so offensive uh, that would cause him to want to scramble back to what he always believed. Um, And here was the truth that he was confronted with. The truth that Jesus laid on him, and this was brand new stuff. This wasn't something that he'd been taught and then pushed off to the side. Like we tend to have truth taught us and then we set it aside because it's not comfortable right now. This was brand new truth. And Jesus says to this man, he says to us today, listen, he says, I've got some brand new news. I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. And it's the same news. You with me? 
here, here it is. I want you to catch this because this is the first thing I'm putting on the screen that you really need to catch today. Okay? Jesus says this, man, I got some good news and I got some bad news. It's the same news. Here it is. A good, here's the, here it is. Ready? Are you writing this down? Ready? Good people. That's all of us. A couple exceptions. <laughs> good people don't go to heaven. That's the uncomfortable truth. Good people don't have the promise of eternal life. Good people don't necessarily enter the Father's kingdom. And guys talking to us like, wait, what? Did I hear you right, Jesus? So if you have your Bible, I'd love you to turn with me to John again. We're going to be in chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is the story of Nicodemus. And we talked a little bit um, about Nicodemus a couple weeks ago, but my first introduction to Nicodemus was in Sunday school. How many of you ever went to Sunday school? Okay. I've actually, maybe you have to have actually seen a picture of Nicodemus. I've seen the actual picture of Nicodemus. I, some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, on the flannel graph, okay? I saw it on the flannel graph, the actual picture of Nicodemus. And if you weren't raised in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, you may not know what flannel graph is, and I'm just going to tell you right now that you have a gap in your life that will never be filled by anything else. So just accept it. Um, whatever you can find to fill the void, just you have permission. But anyway... Um, they basically stuck these little felt cutouts up on a felt board, and they all moved around as they, the teacher told the story. Well, they didn't move on around their own. They moved them around. They didn't move on their own, which would have been really cool. Um, and uh, we didn't have moving pictures then. And uh, we'd try to, some of us would try to, you know, when the teacher wasn't looking, you kind of adjust things, and you, you rearrange the scene for the, just for the teacher to make the story more exciting. And uh, so sometimes, you know, Jesus would be like levitating, which he could do, by the way, which is kind of cool. And, um, and sometimes the clouds would be like under the ground instead of up in the sky. And Nicodemus, he, he would do like headstands and stuff. So you know what I'm talking about. I know who the troublemakers were. And uh, I was a preacher's kid. I was the spy. So I knew. I was the mole. Um, it was quite exciting stuff. But I don't have a flannel graph. I really wanted to bring out a flannel graph for you today. But um, uh, I loaned it to somebody about 50 years ago. I do have a picture, though, which, it, which this picture is only, it's not the actual picture. It's just a cartoonist rendering of the flannel graph. So it's not totally accurate. So we, there. So there's Jesus. You know which one Jesus is, because Jesus always wore white. Everybody knows that. And, um, and there he is with, with Nicodemus. So uh, if you ever wondered what Nicodemus looked like, are you picking up a little bit on the sarcasm here? I hope so, because if you're like, this dude thinks he knows what Nicodemus looks like. <laughs> anyway, I can't say for sure how accurate this picture is, but it's how I picture Nicodemus. So anyway, I remember being told the story of Nicodemus. And in this story, if you're new to church or you're new to the story and you haven't been around church in a while, it's been a long time since you've heard the story, we're going to recap. This is the story where this phrase that is so offensive to some people where it comes from, it's a phrase that's been used a lot over the years. It gets used a lot during political campaigns. It becomes kind of a label, and it's interpreted to mean different things by different people. And this is where the phrase comes from, so we're going to get there. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Let's just stop right there. This is really important. Let me tell you about that part. The Jewish ruling council, this was a group of Jews who represented the people of Israel to Rome and represented Rome to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel at this time was under the control of Rome. 
under Roman oppression. Rome had rolled in uh, uh, a few generations before and conquered Palestine, and so they'd set up a governor there, and Rome ruled uh, and taxed the people. And the way that the Romans facilitated taking care of the people in Israel is they, uh, they had this uh, group of Jews, and they, would, they set them up as leaders, and they would communicate to this group of Jewish leaders, and this Jewish council would then communicate to the people. Now, let me tell you about Nicodemus. Nicodemus has an extremely important job. It'd be like being the mayor of Ellsworth or something like that. So, uh, actually, it's nothing like that. But um, his job was to keep the people of Israel happy with the Romans and to keep the Romans happy with the people of Israel. And as long as he and his buddies did a good job on this ruling council, the Roman government paid them very well. Because a governor of Rome answered to the Roman emperor, and he wanted to be able to say, I've got my territory under control. No rebellions, no upheavals, uh, no wars, no problems. Everybody's paying their taxes. It's all good. And so they would pay the Jewish leaders to make sure that was the case. So the Roman governors would keep these Jewish leaders uh, very well stocked in whatever they wanted if they would in turn keep the people of Israel paying their taxes, cooperating with Rome, keeping the peace. That's who Nicodemus was. He was an extremely important guy, very wealthy, very connected. He knew the law. He was a teacher of the law. He was a law professor. He was considered a religious leader at the same time by the people, and, by the, and he was considered a political leader by, Romans, by the Romans. This is a guy who comes to Jesus. This guy has a lot at stake. And the last thing he wants is some guy to show up and cause some kind of religious uprising that gets Rome's attention. Because as we find out later in the Gospels, these men, these Jewish rulers, were afraid of the Romans, and rightly so. In fact, as you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that these leaders are always saying, let's not do anything that would cause Rome to come and take away our position. In other words, we've got it made here. We've got, we've got the Romans happy with us. We've got the Jews happy with us. Let's not do anything to mess that up. That's the world they lived in, and that's... that's who Nicodemus was. So he comes to Jesus, and here's what the scripture tells us at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night, and a lot of people have made a big deal about him coming at night. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe he had a job. Maybe he had to show up. At, maybe he had classes that day, and he had to teach some law to some students, or maybe he had some Jewish ruling council meetings during the day. Uh, I don't know. We've read a lot into the idea that he came at night, but he came at night. I don't know why. I don't know if it's significant. I don't know if it's, he's sneaking around. It doesn't really matter to me. He came to Jesus is the important part. He said, Rabbi, and that's huge, because the term rabbi was a term of respect. Nicodemus somehow looked at Jesus and said, I feel like somehow after what I've heard you say, after what I've heard about you, after I've, what I've seen you do, after I've seen the way that you treat people, after I've seen the way that people look to you, I feel like I can refer to you as honored teacher, rabbi. And he says, we know you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And this is why this is so important. And this might be where some of you are. This is where the majority of Americans are when it comes to Jesus. Nicodemus just stated their case. Nicodemus comes and he says, Jesus, I've been watching. I saw that little incident at the temple. Very interesting. I heard the rumor about the water and the wine. That's pretty unbelievable stuff. I've seen some people who claim that you healed them. It makes me think. I've heard, some, I've heard you teach some, standing on the outskirts of the crowd. I've come to the conclusion that you are a teacher, you are a rabbi, you are a good man who's come from God, possibly to give us more insight into who God is. 
I mean, isn't that who Jesus is? Ask the average person. Oh, yeah, I think he was a good man. He was a good teacher. Uh, he did a lot of good things for people. He probably had some good things to say. So Nicodemus thinks he understands who Jesus is. He doesn't go so far as to say he's the Messiah. He doesn't believe he's the Messiah. He doesn't believe that he's divine. He doesn't believe that he's God for sure. He believes he's from God. And here's what we find out later. That Nicodemus was coming to Jesus to get some questions answered because one of the things that was on the minds of the Jewish, of the, of the, yeah, the Jewish religious leaders was, that, was when is God going to show up in force? Because the way we interpret prophecy, that's how he's going to show up. He's going to throw, show up in force, and it's going to be like a revolution. He's going to peel back the mystery, and he's going to show himself for who he is to get the Romans out of here to establish, reestablish the nation of Israel as a dominant world power. When is that going to happen? Because there was a day and age when we were a superpower. I mean, when David was king, nobody messed with us. Nobody thought about it. When Solomon was king, we had years of peace and prosperity. Since that time, it's been a total disaster. So when's the Messiah going to come? We've read all the prophecy. We think we know what it means. When's he going to come and reestablish us as a superpower in the world? That was always in the back of their minds, that, that lingering question. So let's keep Rome happy. Let's do what we have to do. But when's the Messiah going to show up? It's been enough time already. When's he going to show up? And, and, and when are we going to get back to being who we should be as a people? So he's coming to Jesus to get insight about God's kingdom. Because he's done a lot of reading of prophecy, and he understands the law, and he knows Jewish history. He knows where they're at in the current time, and he'd like to get some clarity on this. Here's the problem, though, with Jesus, okay? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus always knew what people were going to ask before they asked it, which is pretty cool and a little disturbing. And over and over and over... The Bible says people came to Jesus, and the Scripture says that Jesus knew the hearts of men. And Jesus would start telling a parable or start telling a story or start teaching on the very same thing. And just let me tell you something. Pastor Bob and I do not have this ability. So when we roll, you roll in here on a Sunday, and, and we start on a topic that is right where you've been living your life like in the last seven days, and you think somehow we know what's going on, so we chose this topic. No. It, that's, uh, that must be a Holy Spirit thing, but it's clearly not us reading your heart and mind like Jesus, okay? Um, and you're like, well, that never happened to me because I never have a clue what you're talking about. Well, sorry. I try. But Jesus would start telling a story or, or teaching on something or talking about an illustration that is the very thing that his audience was thinking and wondering about. And even though they didn't always agree with Jesus' take on it, they would, they would ask, how did he know? How did he know this is what was on our minds? It's like he read our minds or something. It's like unbelievable. So Jesus knows why Nicodemus is there. And, and Nicodemus is not there to change his view of God. He's pretty much got that established. He's there to get information to add to what he already believed, especially when it came to his understanding of the kingdom of God. So here's Nicodemus, and he's kind of going through the introduction thing. I'm Nicodemus. I've heard a little bit about you. I know you're a good guy. I know you're a rabbi. I know you've come from God because nobody can do these signs otherwise. And it's almost mid-sentence, verse 3. Jesus replied. I'm like, replied? He didn't, he didn't ask a question. It should be more like Jesus interrupted. Jesus declared. Did you ever think of that? I never noticed that before. That Jesus, He didn't ask a question. Jesus just jumps in. But Jesus was replying to the question in his heart, 
So it's like, let's just go to the heart of why we're here, Nicodemus. Let's just skip through all this and get right there. He says, very truly, I tell you, in other words, I tell you the truth. Very truly, I tell you, put on your sunglasses, Nicodemus. It's about to get uncomfortably bright here. This is going to offend you. It's going to, it, it might drive you away. This isn't what you came to hear. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. So you're wondering when it's going to show up? Well, let me take you back to first base here, Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. There it is. That little phrase. The little phrase born again can be translated born from above. Depends on the Bible translation you're reading. In John 3, later on in the chapter, in verse 33. In John 9, verse 11, the same little Greek word is translated born from above. But Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he's like, whoa, 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 let me take you, let's, let's go back here, Nicodemus. Let's, uh, let's just back this thing up here. Nobody gets in. Nobody sees the kingdom of God unless they're born again, unless they're born from above. And Nicodemus responds the same way we want to respond. So verse 4, how, and I think he's kind of chuckling here, I don't think he's serious. How can someone be born when they are old? Jesus, you've just used some figure of speech here to explain something about God, and I've heard you do that before, but how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked, surely, he's not taking this seriously. He, he knew Jesus was using a figure of speech, but he's a smart guy. He says, surely, they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Ha, ha, ha. Can he? Is that what you're talking about? Because I don't really know what you're talking about, Jesus. That's not what you're saying, right? Verse 4, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, I know this is bright. I know this is going to make you want to retreat to what you've always believed and always known and where your eyes have already adjusted. But I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So Nicodemus, you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. It's like, Nicodemus, come on, you're a, you're a religious leader. You know the law, you know the Old Testament, you know all the prophecies. You of all people should know that physical birth does not guarantee and gain you entrance into God's kingdom. Something else has to happen. And this is very offensive to Nicodemus. When you hear the words born again, or when your friends hear the words born again, we kind of have an idea what they're thinking because it's a phrase that's been loaded up with all sorts of meanings. So you interpret that somehow. But let's go back because this is where it all started, this term the first time we see it. And look at Jesus' definition. Let's not really worry about what our culture has, has done with it. Basically, what Jesus is saying is this, that something more has to happen. Being born physically isn't enough. And let me tell you why this offended Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus was a Jew in ancient Israel. And he believed, as all the people in that culture believed, that if you're related somehow, if you're related to Abraham, then you were in. I mean... You were so in, and these dirty, rotten, stinking Gentiles, they may never get in, probably will never get in. No, nope. uh, they're, they're just nasty. But if you're Jewish, you were so in already from the moment you were born. And if we could get Rome out of here, and we could not only be in, but we could be in charge where we need to be. That's how they thought. And Jesus, who is also Jewish, looks at him and says, Nicodemus, being born and being related to the right person, that's not enough. Unless you're born a second time, unless you're born from above, unless you are born again, you, a leader of the nation, a member of the Jewish ruling council, you will never see or enter the kingdom of God. This is the point where I think Nicodemus 
could have, could have been could have been like, okay, that this is so weird now. I'm out of here. Uh, nice talking to you, Jesus, but you are a whack job. I don't get you at all. I thought you were from God, but I was mistaken. See ya in the conversation. So weird. Just so different. I mean, everybody knows that that's not what it's about, Jesus. I don't know where you're getting this stuff. So I'm getting out of this light. It's too uncomfortable. It's so bright. I can't see a thing here. I'm going back inside where my eyes have adjusted, where everything pretty much makes sense to me because I've kind of figured it out and I've got my own little system that I've come up with where, where I've pretty much got everything figured out. So, so sure, I still have some questions, and, but obviously, you know, Jesus, you can't answer them because this stuff you're coming up with is crazy. So I'm going to go back to what my mom and dad taught me and what my grandparents taught them and, and what we've believed for hundreds and hundreds of years now. I'm going back to what I've always known to be true because this is just weird. This is really, really narrow. And besides, it doesn't even make any sense. But Nicodemus doesn't do that. He does what some of you have done, what I hope some of you will do, what I hope some of our family and friends and neighbors and coworkers will do. Nicodemus pauses, and he realizes, maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe I've been maybe I've been maybe I've been wrong. Maybe my parents got it wrong, maybe my grandparents got it wrong. Maybe not only have I believed wrong, maybe I've taught wrong in his case, because there's something about this guy that makes me want to stay. Look what he says, this uh, next verse is uh, down to verse 9. He says, how can this be? <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, it's like, I'm not running. I'm not arguing. I'm just, I'm just telling you when I take the phrase, be born again, be born from above. It's, 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 it's not about who I'm related to physically. When I try to work with that, with what I've always believed, I'm like, how can that be? This is so different, so new. Because here's something about Nicodemus. Let me tell you what he believed. He believed, like some of us believe, like he believed, like a lot of the world believes, that there is somehow this cosmic scale somewhere and that all of us do bad things and, and, and some of us do like big time bad things. You know, you've really gotten God ticked off somewhere in your past. And some of you have done like medium sized bad things. And then there's people like me. We just do little bitty bad things that really God doesn't really care about. It's not that big a deal to God, my sins. Just the little things, you know. But you know what? Eventually, well, we, even those of us who are mostly guilty of the little things, eventually they stack up and they become like bigger things. Well, medium things. But we're not bad people, are we? No, we're good people. And yeah, we've got some little things, but we're good people. So in the course of our lives, we do some really, really, really good things. And then we do some more good things. And then we do some more good things just to kind of cap it off, just to make sure. And as long as that is how we are with God, then God's cool with us. And when you die, God's going to look at the scale and he's going to go, come on in, you got more weight on this side than that side, so you're in. Oh, and good news, your kids are in too, and that's just how it works, because you're good, and you got more good than bad, and you're not as good as some people, but uh, you're not, certainly not as bad as some people, and most, I mean, most people are good, so just everybody, let's, you know what, let's just come on in, everybody come on in, because most people, you're just good people, and we think that's how it works. This is essentially what Nicodemus thought, that there's a good God, he lives in a good heaven, the good people have eternal life, and if you're related to Abraham, I'll tell you what, you are so in. And what he began to understand as Jesus taught, and as Jesus talked to him, and as he finished his ministry, that Jesus was not commenting um, 
on this system, that Jesus didn't come to give more insight into how the system works. And the reason Nicodemus stood there that day and took it and said, how can this be, is because he understood that Jesus wasn't explaining the current system. He wasn't giving more to do. He wasn't saying, giving him ideas about how to stack up more good things so to make sure the cosmic scale works out in his favor. He wasn't giving him more things to do to add to his list. What Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus was something entirely different. This wasn't about how to be good enough to get to heaven or how to be related to the right people and good enough to get to heaven. Jesus is standing there and he says, I'll tell you, you'll never see, you'll never enter God's kingdom until you're born again until you receive brand new life, until something you don't have becomes something you do have. And Nicodemus, it has nothing to do with what you've always believed, with what you've been trusting in your whole life, with what you've been counting on, with what you've been teaching as truth. I mean, I know you've been teaching it for a long, long time. It has nothing to do with any of that. So this is pretty disturbing to Nicodemus. Maybe it's disturbing to you. And I understand that because it's nice to have... uh, this system that we've kind of figured out and landed on and we like it, where there's a good God and there's a good heaven and I'm a good person, so let's get on with life because I know how it works out. You know, I don't know the particulars. I don't know how it all works, but we'll figure it out because I'm sure it does and it all works out in the end. When you hear me stand up here and say that, that it's not about being good enough, uh, you may be sitting there thinking, I don't even, even want to hear that because I don't know how to factor this in because it's just so different. So it continues on, and Jesus decides to talk about something that he knew Nicodemus could understand. So, Because we tend to think that when we communicate truth with someone, you ought to start with where your audience is, but, uh, which is not a bad approach. But Jesus liked to start way, way out there to get his listeners' attention, to say something crazy and extreme, and then draw them back. And he come back to something that they could identify with and relate to. So that's what he did with Nicodemus. Verse 14 tells a story. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, to which Nicodemus is going, oh, okay, I'm with you now. That sounds familiar. That's an Old Testament story. I know that one. And the children of Israel were wandering around in the desert after they'd left Egypt. Remember that? You saw the movie. And they're wandering around in the desert, and they get sick, and this plague starts, starts wiping out all these people. And Moses takes this big pole, and they put a sculpture of a snake on it. It's just kind of odd. And he sticks it in the ground, and he's like, everybody needs to look at the serpent. And when you looked at the serpent, you were healed. And Nicodemus knew that story, and Jesus is like, okay, Nicodemus, let me make this as clear as I know how. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert in the same way, the Son of Man, that's me, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So let's make this really, really clear, Nicodemus. What I've come to introduce to you, what I've come to introduce the world to, what the Father has sent me to explain is that the scale, it never worked to begin with. And the thinking that says, if God is going to accept me because I'm good, then do, then do enough good stuff and make sure you've got enough good stuff accumulated. And it's like, do I have enough? Do I have enough good stuff accumulated to offset the bad? Because for me, you know, there was some bad back there and nobody else knows about it, but I know about it and God probably knows about it. So I got a lot of good to do to catch up. And how does this all work out anyway? He says, Nicodemus, I'm telling you, if you think I'm from God, then focus right here. As uncomfortable as it is, that system is over. In fact, it never really existed, but in your mind it did. This is a brand new way. It's a brand new approach. You don't get to heaven, and you don't get to enter God's kingdom in the here and now through some elaborate system of laws and rules and doing enough good stuff to offset the bad. That never was the way to God, but it was the prominent thinking. 
He says, Nicodemus, you get to heaven and you get, you get to be involved in the work of God on planet earth by placing your faith and trust in me, the Son of God. And if you think that's narrow, and if you think that's offensive, I guarantee you Nicodemus has a thousand questions right now. We discover, though, later that instead of running and retreating and going back into that darkness where his eyes had adjusted, and instead of plotting and trying to outmaneuver and saying, forget it, that Nicodemus stood there. He stood there and he stayed there in the light of that offensive brand new truth and said, how can this be? How can this be? I realize that I can't blend this with what I've always believed. There is, this is something completely different altogether. How can it be? And then you jump down a few verses and Jesus kind of summarizes what he's trying to, to communicate to Nicodemus. And, and you've heard this verse before in verse 16. And Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him not does better than the day before, not promises God, not you know, commits to do better, not attends church, not whoever has better intentions, none of that. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to say this, that we do not receive eternal life, we do not enter the kingdom of God because of all the good things that we do. We find entrance into God's kingdom by the one single good work that the Savior did when he died on the cross for our sin. That's the message of Jesus Christ that was offensive and uncomfortable and yet life-changing, was that the man or the woman who will place their faith in what I've done, he says, on their behalf, get this, will not earn eternal life because you can't earn entrance into God's kingdom, but it will be given to them freely because of what has already been done on their behalf. You know what Nicodemus did? He just stood there and he took it. And apparently he came back and he stood on the edge of the crowd and he stood in that shining, penetrating, uncomfortable, offensive light of Jesus' truth. And over time, because he stayed there, and over time his eyes adjusted and he saw things he'd never seen before. And one day he's in a meeting with all these uh, Jewish ruling council guys and they decide we've got to get rid of this Jesus because he is causing a stir and it's going to be ugly and Rome is going to roll in here and take our power away. We've got to deal with these problems right now. And he keeps causing all these people to follow him and, and the Romans are not going to be happy. We've got to deal with it. We've got to get rid of him. And Nicodemus stands up and he's like, hey, hey, whoa, 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 wait, time out. Should we condemn someone we haven't even tried and convicted? And he starts to question them on their thought process and what they want to do here, and they just shut him down completely. And when Jesus dies on the cross and they take his body down, guess who shows up to take care of the body? Nicodemus. Because his first hunch about Jesus was true, that this was a man who'd come from God. And in time, Nicodemus came to believe that he didn't simply come from God, that he was the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. You know, for some of us, we hear that and we can remember our defining moment around that truth. You can remember when you heard it, and you heard it, and you heard it, and then one day, you're driving down the road, you're sitting in church, you're talking to a friend, you open your Bible, and it's like, oh, okay, I get it. And you let go of the old system, whatever way of thinking you'd adopted, and you embrace the truth, and it was a defining moment for you. And a lot of you can... Right now, you're taking yourself back there. And you've never viewed life the same way since. Some of you in this room, you're, you are where Nicodemus was. You're still considering. So my challenge to you is this. Don't run away from this. As uncomfortable as it is, and as offensive as it can be, 
as countercultural as it is, don't pull up all the excuses that you've been fed from your college experience or your friends or your family, these things you've been repeating for years. Would you be willing to just consider? Would you be willing to stand in front of this truth and say, I don't accept it today. I don't get it. I, I don't. But how can this be? How can this be? I'll hear you out. Because I'm willing, I'm willing to allow this to get all over me long enough so that if my eyes would begin to adjust, I don't want to miss it. Oh, and then would you consider something else? Would you consider, I mean, really consider the system that you've been trusting in? You've probably never really honestly thought about it much. You have your faith in it. You have your trust in it. You've decided and you've mixed in a little bit of church in there too. You decided a long time ago there's a good God and there's a good heaven who allows good people to go to heaven, so I need to figure out how to be a good person. Would you just really consider this? Because you're smart enough that if you just spend a little bit of time examining the system, you could shoot so many holes in it, you'd walk away going, that doesn't make any sense at all. I can't believe I leaned into that for so long. Because when you're honest about looking at a system like that, you realize that somebody, first of all, made this up. Somebody had to come up with this. Where are they? And if it's true... Where is the God who set it up? Where is the list of things that we should do in order to get to heaven? Shouldn't we at least have that list? Shouldn't you have given that to us? If this is the system that you tend to live your life by, then I'd say whoever came up with that list is pretty cruel not to give you the checklist. I mean, how do you know when your good is good enough? How do you know? How do you know when you've done enough to offset the bad? How do you know how certain good acts measure up to certain bad things? What does the scale look like exactly? Because, like, for instance, if, like, Mother Teresa was good, then we're all in a heap of trouble, okay? Because we haven't got enough time now to make up for whatever. What's the standard? You can't use the Bible because that's, you know, that's not what the Ten Commandments is all about. You know, read the Gospels, you'll discover that you've been trusting in something that really doesn't make any sense at all. So if you'd be willing to say there was something to the claims of Jesus, as uncomfortable as it is, as much as it makes me want to retreat to what I am familiar with, I will stay here and I'll consider it. If you'll do that, here's what you'll discover. Not overnight, necessarily, but over time, the truth of what Jesus said will set you free. Let me summarize it for you real quick. Here's the message of Jesus. It wasn't that good people go to heaven. It wasn't that good people go to heaven, so here's how to be good. Not his message. Ready for this? Jesus taught that good people don't go to heaven. Jesus taught that forgiven people go to heaven. Forgiven people get to partake in the kingdom of God on earth today. Forgiven people get to be a part of what God is doing right now. Forgiveness is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been considering this for a while. I think I'd be missing an opportunity this morning to wrap up this story about Nicodemus without giving you a chance to close the deal. Maybe you've been coming for a while. Uh, You've been considering this whole thing. You've been sitting in this light. You've been having some conversations. And now your eyes are starting to adjust and you're starting to see things you've never seen before. And the truth is beginning to come front and center. And you're beginning to realize it's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus did for me. So if you're here this morning, you're at that point. I want to give you a chance to seal the deal, to have your defining moment. 
I want to give you a chance to make the decision to place all your faith and all your trust in Christ's death on the cross as a payment for your sin. And I want to lead you in a prayer. And this prayer doesn't make you a Christian prayer. You don't pray a magic prayer and then now I'm a Christian. Uh, But prayer is just a way that we express our decision to put our faith in Christ. Here's how the prayer is going to go. I just want to give you a little sneak peek and then we're going to pray the prayer together. The prayer goes something, I just lead you in something like this. Lord, I believe I need a Savior. I believe Jesus is my Savior, that he died on the cross for my sins. And at this moment in time, I want to be born again. I want to be born from above, however you want to say it. I want the gift of eternal life. Say it however you want. But at this moment in time, I'm placing all of my faith in what Christ did on the cross for me. I'm not going to trust my church attendance. I'm not going to trust in who I'm related to. I'm not going to trust in my promises and my good intentions and my good deeds. I'm not going to trust in all those good things that I can do. All of my faith is no longer in what I've done or what I can do in the future, but all of my faith is in what was done on my behalf by Jesus. Because I believe good people don't go to heaven. I believe forgiven people go to heaven, and I'm claiming your forgiveness. So I want to lead you in a prayer kind of like that. If you're ready to pray a prayer like that, that's where you are in your spiritual journey, and this is where you land today, and you're ready for that defining moment, and I want to, I want to lead you in a prayer. And uh, So let's do this. Let's just all join together in prayer right now. So if you want to, uh, if this is where you are and you're going to pray this prayer with me, that's, that's awesome. If this is, as this defining moment for your life is somewhere in your past and you can look back to that day, I, I just encourage you for the next two minutes to just take some time and give thanks to God for that moment in your life and the journey that you've been on and pray for the people around you who are still considering. Let's pray. The, the worship team is actually going to come to the stage while we pray, if that's okay with you guys, and get ready to sing. But you can just pray this with me silently right where you are. You change the words, use your own words, but say something like this. Lord, I believe that I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus came to be my Savior. I'm placing all my trust in Jesus' death on the cross as a full payment for my sin. I'm not trusting in my background. I'm not trusting in my efforts. I'm not trusting in my church attendance. I'm not trusting in my baptism. I'm putting all of my faith in who Jesus is and what he did on my behalf. Now receive me into my family. I accept your gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.